I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that's much more interested in what you read in bed than what you wear. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, and thank you for listening to this summer bonus special. I'm still talking about censure, but this time on the telly. I'm joined by Dr. Morgan Waite, who knows a hell of a lot more than I do about the history of Irish television. Hi, Morgan. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Aoife. I'm very thrilled to talk about what is perhaps one of the more famous incidents in Irish television. In fact, you could say the most famous scandal. Like, the internet is covered with articles on it and opinion pieces, and it's got its own catchphrase, the bishop and the knighty, which is hilarious and absurd. And so maybe you could explain to us, as if none of us ever saw it, because the visual is actually lost, there's only the audio. So explain to us what happened. What is the bishop and the knighty incident? Okay. So the bishop and the knighty happened in uh, 1966 on what was basically the equivalent of the uh, Valentine's Day special of the Late Late Show. Um, So basically, Gay Byrne was playing a game with this couple, the Foxes. And uh, he asked Eileen, uh, the wife, what she was wearing on the night of her, uh, like the night that she got married. And she basically said, oh, well, sorry, he asked her what color the nightie was. And she said, oh, I wasn't wearing anything. I wasn't wearing a nightie, basically. Sounds reasonable. I mean, normal. <laughs> Fairly reasonable, and what you would expect from a married couple. But yeah, so then, basically, the Bishop of Clonfort, I believe he rang into the show, like, he rang, rang into RT immediately to say, this needs to go off the air, this is a terrible thing that is happening, um, and he was very upset about it. Um, they didn't cut off the air or anything, but it, subsequent to it, there were a few news articles around it. And eventually the station was annoyed enough that they made Byrne give a kind of half-hearted apology saying, oh, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody's tastes. And uh, that was the end of it. People are, it it became a really big thing in sort of like Irish media. I actually think much later, sort of around the 50th anniversary of it in around 2016. And I know this because at the time I was doing my master's on the church and television and uh, in in the the period, and everyone kept asking me about the Bishop of the Nighty, mainly because John Bowman had done an episode of it on his uh, history program. So yeah. 
It did spur, as far as I know, a couple of letters to the editor in some major newspapers. Um, there were sort of splashes about it around. And yeah, it's painted as this it has been painted in media as this huge controversy that really upset people in Ireland. And it's always, it's almost always pointed out as something that like upset the public. But in reality, it was really just that this Bishop was mad. There was press coverage coverage about it. One of the first things that I did when I started the PhD was I was like, Oh, I'm going to look at like flashpoints in sort of like, you know, Irish television history and see if there's anything there about like women or anything like that. So I went to the Bishop in the 91st, but if you actually go into like the newspapers and stuff like that, there's very little there in terms of people actually being upset. There's nothing at all in the RT guide, which is normally where like if someone wrote a letter, that's where it would have ended up. Now, I do think the station got a few phone calls and stuff like that. It's something that people have like found and has become this huge sensation in sort of modern Irish media, but that I don't actually think had a huge amount of impact at the time. So that's my potted explanation of the Bishop of Nighty and how I how I feel about it. Like, do you think that even the title of it, the Bishop and the Nighty, it's very evocative of a certain collision of church and sex? And it's, you know, to be honest, Irish people do like to harp on about being Catholic in a bad way and, you know, the Catholic legacy and being under the cosh of the bishops. And do you think that the kind of the way that it can be summarized like that makes it kind of sexy for us to think about as a controversy? Absolutely. It it has like everything. It has the church. It has, you know, like women's sexuality. It has gay burn. Um, So it has all of these things that you know, you can point to it and say, oh, well, you know, like, wasn't Ireland backwards in, you know, the 60s? And weren't people really upset about this? Um, And it also, I think, in terms of like, people's sort of perceptions of television in Ireland, it fits really well. Because when you look at stuff, um, when you look at sort of like the, the way that people conceptualize television in the 60s, it very much is like, the late, late and gay burn, like brought sex to Ireland to the point that like, that is something that like, Loads of people have said um, in a number of different contexts. Um, the first of which I believe was Oliver Flanagan, like on an actual episode of The Late Late Show. <laughs> That's very meta. <laughs> yeah. So it uh, it speaks to all of those things. And I think for that reason, it's something that really has been like latched onto as this like major incident. And so it, may, it makes sense that people have, you know, latched onto it in this way, but it's not necessarily, you know, the biggest controversy that like RTE ever had. So what other controversies do you think kind of merit our attention that maybe we're sidelining because they don't have great catchy titles? And I suppose they don't feature Gay Byrne, who is, you know, the most important broadcaster of the 20th century, arguably, and hugely popular. So the other controversies when they don't have him, maybe that's part of the reason. Yeah, well, anything without Gay Byrne is going to get, you know, significantly less attention. Uh, so there is that. There's a there's a number of different controversies. Like, I would say that the biggest controversy during, like, the 60s was actually the sit down and be counted controversy. Oh, we see. I haven't heard of that at all. What is sit down and be counted? Yeah, no one ever has. So it's the, well, some people, but like, you know, tele- people who are really into, you know, studying Irish television, but like, uh, but it's basically, Sit Down and Be Counted was a, uh, it's actually a book that I have actually sitting next to me here, that uh, three producers at the station wrote. 
Um, so it was Leela Joel and Bob Quinn and Jack Dowling. And basically they had all sort of together resigned from RTE because they felt that they felt that the station was putting advertising imperatives over the like over the you know sort of public broadcasting ethos that they were supposed to be following. So they all resigned. There was an episode of the Late Late where they all went on and talked about why they resigned. Um, and at the time, this was huge. Like people referenced it in the doll. People uh, like there were loads of different like uh, you can get loads of different letters to the editor where people are referencing you know the Leela Dolan, Bob Quinn, Jack Dowling affair. This is kind of a major controversy about like concepts of what broadcasting, you know, means. It wasn't necessarily um, like it's definitely not sexy because, again, like you'd have to read the book and all of that to, you know, really get into it. And people don't want to, you know, do that necessarily. But yeah. And then there's there's a good few others that are kind of around similar similar topics, uh, like a lot of times about like advertising um, and like, you know, different conceptions of what public broadcasting should mean. Um, and I can get into them if you would like me to. Oh, yes, please do. I mean, that's that's really interesting that we can boil something down to a bishop having a hissy fit and think it's very interesting and then ignore the bigger ideological discussions of what public broadcasting is supposed to do. Yeah, and like... It's it's important as well because like people were really people weren't that invested in the Bishop of the Nighty like they weren't like you know that interested in that but even at, at the time people were were actually interested in like what is my license fee going to pay like what is like you know what does like public broadcasting mean um, and like so this incident started with like very like at the very start of it. Um, not terribly far away from uh, when the Bishop and the Nighty Bishop and the Nighty happened around sixty six, sixty seven, with a show called Home Truths, and this was it was basically a it was a women's program more or less. Um, it was a magazine program. There was a cooking segment. Um, they gave all sorts of different you know household tips, um, and they had a consumer segment because the Jack Dowling, who was one of the producers who eventually left, was you know, what he viewed the show as was a vehicle by which to inform working class housewives about sort of their rights, better ways to like save money, um, and to really sort of speak to that audience specifically. It was a bit of a divergence from what they'd been, the station had been doing earlier, because the show before that was called Home for Tea. It was like absurdly middle class, uh, to the point where, one one commentator once said it resembled the uh, the glossy magazines um, when they treat their you know when they're about to treat their readers like imbeciles or something along those lines. But anyway, so at Home Truths they um, they were writing scripts about like you know ways for housewives to get the best deal on nail polish remover. Like they showed that like. Uh, you could go to the chemist and get acetone to re remove, uh, I should say nail varnish, actually, sorry, American, but uh, how they could, you know, do that and not have to actually, you know, buy the branded nail varnish remover. And that very specific incident led to the, uh, the advertising manager at RT at the time to come in and say, you can't run the segment anymore. It's losing us money. Um, we're not going to do this anymore. And just like, he didn't, he didn't necessarily ax it outright, but what he said was, you have to show me all of your scripts ahead of time in order for me to clear them so that I know that I'm not, that we're not losing money out of this. 
it was very much like it was quite it wasn't entirely explicit censorship, but it was certainly, uh, you know, a nod to say, please stop doing this. Um, and that was initially what led Jack Dowling to um, he first left the show and he, he left the station uh, very soon after that. And then that sort of snowballed then into the, you know, sit down and be counted incident. So that's another one there just around like, you know nail varnish and there's another one on toothpaste and i don't know they were very mad because they had to at one point show they showed a segment on the dangers of smoking and then a doctor uh like and then a, um an ad for cigarettes like right afterwards so like <laughs> it was it was a mess for them to be fair but it was definitely them putting you know advertising imperatives well above any sort of ideas of public broadcasting yeah that's much more serious than a bishop getting cross. I mean, that is about not being able to make a program because of commercial sensitivities, which seems like a much bigger issue. Yeah, it's it's significantly it's a significantly bigger issue. And it's an issue that created a lot more like controversy in terms of like letters to the editor and in terms of like saying there was a, there was quite a large controversy actually around there. They did a profile on sort of housing and house prices in a certain part of Cork um, that at the time uh, was represented, I believe, by Lamas, I want to say. Was it Jack Lynch? It was Jack Lynch. Yeah. Sorry. I always go with, like, sorry. The two L's, they're both Taoiseach. It's it's understandable. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's there are... There, there are dull debates where they're referencing what happened at Home Truths and how can RT say that they were, you know like actually representing what Irish people like wanted to see or their interests basically. So in that way, it is a much bigger incident than anything to do with the Bishop and the Knighty. Like that, that sort of all fizzled out within, you know, about a month as far as I know. And there really wasn't a huge amount of like, there was no public pressure to take like the late late off the air or anything like that. It was just, uh, yeah. And a few outraged letters. And to be honest, you know, there are cranks everywhere. You can muster up a few letters on nearly anything. Yeah. More or less, you definitely you definitely can. And there really weren't, like, it's a very small amount that you'd see in, like, the actual press about it. And, like, I've seen much bigger, like, back and forth, like, letter writing, you know, sort of uh, incidents. Like, I mean, one of the biggest letter writing incidents was also around Home Truths, but nothing to do with anything to do with censorship. It was just that um, Monica Sheridan, who was a uh, celebrity chef in Ireland in the 60s, who she had been on Home for Tea. Um, had done their cooking segment for many years and she was asked to come on to uh, Home Truths but she was told that she could only have, her budget was basically, um, her budget was like four pounds for a week of food shopping basically and she said that's too low, I can't cook for that, I won't do it and this was a public incident and people were basically writing back and forth ar- arguing with each other over whether or not like, um, and there are I don't know, a couple dozen letters on this uh, to the the very specific back and forth is all in Evening Herald, but in a couple of different newspapers, you can see it as well. And that's a lot more than, you know, ever came in about the Bishop of the Nighty. So. It's interesting you talk about the way that people are writing letters debating RTE's role. Did people write into RTE often, sort of asking them to do things or responding to a programme like Home Truths? I mean, apart from the Late Late Show and the Bishop, is there a pattern of people writing in and saying, I didn't like this, please change it? So the issue with answering that question is that RTE has not kept a huge amount of 
anything that anybody they, they don't have a huge amount of documentation on like you know things that people wrote to them a lot of stuff has been lost like a huge amount like you wouldn't even see like there wouldn't even be many letters like that people wrote about or to the late late you know it within rt it's it's quite rare to find something like that what is common is um they would take the letters and the ones that they liked they would put into the rt guide um there's loads of those so you can see that people were doing this and interacting with the station in that way and just like as a historian, the big thing that you get is, did somebody write to a newspaper about this? Because that's how you're really going to actually get at it. Now, there are situations in which uh, the letters were retained, but like they're, they're few and far between. But there is a there's a program called, that was called Southside. And there's a bunch of letters uh, that they saved from that show because it was also a major controversy in uh, RTE. Um, but there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of letters that you can find, but I think it was a common enough practice. What was Southside? It's another, uh, program I've never heard of. (laughs) So no one has ever heard of Southside. I actually did a survey for the PhD to see, like, one of the questions was like, what do you remember? And like had a list of programs and only one person remembered Southside. And this person was importantly from Cork and, I think that is because Southside was a, it was a soap opera. It was set in the suburbs of Cork. Interestingly enough, it was initially actually like the spec script is set in Dublin, um, but they really needed like something going on in Cork to like, you know, satisfy Cork people. (laughs) So they ended up setting it there. So it's a really interesting program. It was written by a guy named David Hayes, who I just believe was a sound, a sound guy. It's a quite a progressive program. Like it does a lot where it talks about sort of, you know, like um, it it sort it deals with sexuality a lot more explicitly than the Late Late Show often would have. There's some sort of incident in which a woman got pregnant on the show and actually considered having an abortion, but there's no record. There's <laughs> exactly this was 1969. I should say unthinkable. <laughs> but unfortunately for me and everyone else, the script that 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 plot would follow based on the you know the sort of sparse evidence that i have in like the papers and the letters those two scripts do not exist in the rt archives so it's very difficult to get any further with that which is annoying for a number of reasons and i don't know i don't know if they were gone intentionally or if there was just a an accident the rest of the scripts are there and that's all i know and can say but yeah so it it was quite a progressive show and it did a lot of really it did a lot of really interesting things um, and for that reason, obviously, it made a lot of people really mad. So a bunch of people wrote into RTE to say, you have to take, basically, you have to take this off the air, like, immediately um, for a number of reasons. So obviously, the sort of, like, you know, unplanned pregnancy incident upsets people. But um, that's actually not what's most prominent in letters. Um, people are more upset about, like, there was an adultery plot. Where the two people don't even actually end up committing adultery. They just kind of like play around with the idea that they're going to. But this really, really upset people and they didn't like it. And actually, specifically Cork people did not like it because <laughs> of the of the letters. Uh, I Over half of them are, are from Cork specifically. And people <laughs> saying, we're absolutely not like this. Like, please stop saying this. As I sit in Cork, I can confirm that Cork people will complain about misrepresentation or any representation <laughs> loudly. Yeah, like, it's just, uh, cause it's interesting to be fair. Like, I mean, if you look at, like, the Reardon's or you look at, like, Tolkarow. So the Reardon's was, a, uh, another soap opera that was set in, it's kind of a, it, it's not really anywhere, but it's like the Midlands in, mm. you know, like, technically, I think it was supposed to be, uh, Kilkenny, but there's no real, like, you know, 
explanation of where it is, but it's in the it's in rural Ireland, and Tolkaro is a soap opera that was set in Dublin. And if you look at the reaction to both of those shows, it does come from, you know, Tolkaro, Dublin people are mad, the Reardons, people everywhere else are mad. So it is that, like, people relating to things that are, you know, to do with them, it's going to make them more, you know, annoyed at it. It's not specific to Cork, it's just, you know, <laughs> with the specific show about Cork. So when people recognise themselves, or perhaps suspect that they recognize themselves and their communities, they get cross and write in asking for it to be changed. Yeah. And I think like, it's both when they recognize themselves or when they don't recognize themselves when they're just because you can, you can look at it in two different ways, I guess you can look at it as you can give the people some credit and say, they're looking at this, it's set where they are, where they're from, and they're seeing something that is not representative of the lives that they live. Like, they don't live in a world where, you know, men cheat on their wives or girls get pregnant and, you know, and obviously they do, but maybe they don't see that they do, if that makes sense. Or you can look at it as they recognize themselves and they don't want this out there. They don't want any of this discussed because they do know that these things happen, but they don't want them to be, you know, pushed out there and, you know, sully the view of where they're from to other people. So I think it could be either way, depending on how much credit you want to give, you know sort of outraged people. The concept of outrage is so interesting because it's such an important part of censorship. And also, I mean, this isn't censorship, people writing in. This would be much more in the line of censure, as in it's kind of a feedback from the audience and it's up to the programme makers whether they want to take that on or not. Um, So it's not quite the same as censorship, but it could have an effect on the programmes that are made. Do you think it did? I think it depends on it depends on the program. So like with Southside, I do think I think there was a lot of pressure on RT to get rid of the program. And importantly, when the program ends, it is number one in the TAM ratings, which are just like the rating system in, in Ireland. Like it's inconsistently. So people are watching the show, but they do get rid of it. I can't say for sure that they got rid of it because people were outraged by it or because it was so scandalous. I definitely think it was somewhat to do with that. Now, the other sort of end is the is, again, the sort of budget imperative that like RT had to deal with, because when Southside was going to go into a third season, it was the year that uh, RT had to host the Eurovision because Dana had won and it bankrupted them like almost completely. Um, so they get rid of like they get rid of a huge amount of stuff, and Southside is one of those things that goes. But maybe it was a bit convenient that Southside is the thing that goes in the budget crisis, considering that it is like probably the most popular show on air at the time. It can have an effect, but there's all there's a lot of times other things at play, and there's always you know some other ex- with RT at least there's always some other excuse that can be given to say we didn't bow to public pressure. It can be hard with institutions as well to disentangle all of the factors that go into making a decision. And particularly because they don't write half of them down. So you're only working on the ones they've written down. Yeah, well, that's the thing. No one wrote down like, we hate Southside. People are mad. Let's get rid of this. Like, So it's just a matter of like trying to figure out exactly what they were thinking at any given time. And I don't know. Allowing, you know, credit for all options, you know, you can, again, give, give them, you know, the, the benefit of the doubt, or you can not give them the benefit of the doubt. So, yeah, I mean, that's very much a position that you adopt, isn't it? It's like, do you want to see the suppression side? Or do you want to see the possibly no money side? <laughs> Choose your argument. Yeah, and it, and it comes up, it comes up a lot. And a lot, of, a lot 
sometimes OT actually is the no money side, but a lot of times it is a specific sort of like, sometimes it's no money with suppression at the same time. So like in sort of in the case of like home truths and, you know, not wanting that sort of, because it was a more, it was also a more progressive program and they didn't, they may not have wanted that, you know, messaging out there and the advertising imperatives just sort of sealed it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating to try and disentangle how censure works because it's so much more complicated than censorship, which tends to be straightforward prohibition and law and that's it. But censure is very nebulous, isn't it? Yeah, it's significantly more nebulous because you can very rarely point to a, you can very rarely point to like one specific thing. Whereas with censorship, I mean, sometimes it's as much as, you know, someone, you know, crossing something out with a pen and it- you know, sort of see that that is something that is, you know, that has been said no to. But with censure, you kind of have to figure out how is this actually reacted to in the period and how does how does that interact with, you know, what was gotten rid of? Um, so it is it's definitely uh, not as straightforward. I think that's why people get more upset with censure, because they can't see it happening as easily because it's not clear who's got the power and where the power shifts to at different points. And I think sometimes I think that's what the panic over cancel culture is about, because no one's quite sure how things are working. And of course, whether it exists at all. And so they, you know, I think that's that's part of what drives that fear and the panic over that, as opposed to censorship, which funnily enough, people often just accept government censorship and just shrug. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that like, because people can't see the specific power structure that's actually at work there, it is a lot more like, it becomes confusing to people and like, particularly something along the lines of like, you know, cancel culture, a lot of times it's like, well, does this person have more power to cancel things than I do? And how am I supposed Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, you know, get across like my power to say that I don't like a thing and this other person does? And how do you balance, you know, those competing interests? And, uh, yeah. And can you even say that cancel culture actually exists? Um, it's yeah, because in many ways, you could argue versions of it have always existed, as in a certain amount of outrage can change things. But it's very unpredictable as to which outrage will change what. And no one can be sure. So and the other thing is, like, how long does the outrage last? And how long does that actually like, you know, how long does that maintain until like particularly with like, you know, you know, in the modern day, like, when can somebody sort of come back from that outrage? And like, is there sort of an end to the censure at that point? And is there like an end to like the, you know, cancellation, so to speak? Uh, and a lot of times now it does seem like there is very much like a, a clear time limit for when people just kind of, you know, forget and go back to like liking what everything was canceled before. And they're just like, oh, okay, we can like that again. Cool. I mean, in fairness, outrage is exhausting, you know? <laughs> it is. It's hard to sustain for long periods of time. Yeah. And like, there's so many things to be outraged about now. Like you'd envy people in the past at a certain level. Like they just had to be mad about like a little show in Cork. And like, you know, there were probably a few other things to be mad about. Um, But now you could be mad about, you know, 50 different things in a given day because you have too much access to things. Yeah, Yeah, there's just too much news. There's too much information. (laughs) But do you think then that broadcasters like RTE, did they see it as their role to challenge people like that to kind of provoke outrage or were they quite were they trying not to and created it accidentally if you know what i mean 
I think I think it depends on what you mean by RT. So like RT as an organization, so the people who run the show, the authority, um, the higher ups, the director general, all of those people, they did not want to cause outrage. They wanted they genuinely wanted pretty middle of the road things. And that's what they got most of the time. Most of the time, RT was really this very status quo organization that did not rock the boat in any major way in the period. But when you talk about people who worked at RT, so like someone like David Hayes or Jack Dowling or Leela Dolan or Bob Quim, they wanted to rock the boat and they felt that that was their role as people making programming. So you have a lot of competing interests there between, you know, people who, you know, they have to have people employed to make the shows and they can't just get rid of all of them. So they have a certain agenda, they have a certain idea, but they were always competing and being pushed up against by the station itself, like saying, we don't actually, you know, want to put any of this out there. Could you guys not just make something like, you know, light and fluffy and fun for everybody? I suppose in institutions, there are a lot of competing interests and RTE is a relatively large institution by Irish standards. So it has, must have camps and factions and power struggles within it that reflect different agendas. And sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. Yeah, I mean, yeah, much like any other institution, there's always going to be, you know, different philosophies within it. And I mean, even among program makers, there wasn't necessarily like one idea of how everything should be. You definitely had a faction in the 60s, in particular the late 60s, who really did want to push the envelope. Um, and they were completely pushed out. Um, and the people who were left behind, some of them agreed with them to a certain extent, but some of them really didn't. Um and there's always, yeah, there's always going to be, you know, sort of competing ideas of how how to run a station and all of that. I'm just, it's just coming to mind that there was a, a, another sort of like Eurovision incident where, you know, RTE staff, um, including Owen Harris, kind of hilariously, went and protested outside of the uh, the Eurovision the year in uh, 71 when Ireland was hosting. That was like, you know, you could point to that as this like big controversy where RTE staff are rioting and you can see there this like this very specific faction of the station who does not want the who doesn't want, you know, the commercial instance, the commercial uh, interests to win out. But on the other side of that, I, I've met people who actually like worked on it, like particularly production assistants, and they were furious that, you know, someone would come and say that their hard work was like, you know, just, you know, commercial, like boondoggle and terrible and all of that. So there's always that, you know, back and forth that even within the organization, people aren't going to agree. It's just fascinating. It's particularly interesting to me that we've managed to talk about the bishop and the knighty and completely debunk it. I mean, this is a a debunking episode, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Like, I I will, like, talk about this to anybody who, like, ever asks me about the Bishop of the Nighty. I'm just like, it didn't really happen. It's not really a thing. And, like, of course it did happen. And I, I appreciate, like, why it has been brought out in the way that it is. Because it is such a good story. And it's such, like, a... It's a good way to get clicks on an article. It's a good way to get people to listen to your show. And, like... But as, like, a television historian, it always drives me nuts. Because I'm just like, but this wasn't... There's so many, like, you know, bigger incidents at RTE that are going on. You know, no one ever, you know, knows about or wants to talk about. So, And there was a program made by RTE. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The series Scannel, which is the Irish for Scandal. And it featured a discussion of a program called The Spike that was axed unexpectedly in the middle of the run because there was a new D-Lady shown in one of the scenes, you know. And so Orti has made a program documenting this past scandal, which has all of the necessary ingredients to become popular history scandal. Nudity, offended 
clergy types. Well, no, not clergy. The League of Decency. They're, you know, moral outrage, lay people. And even though Orti has done this work and made the programme, it's like a dead letter in popular terms. Nobody, nobody talks about the spike. It's silence. Yeah, I mean, it, and it is this like quite big, uh, it is this like relatively big incident. Now, I can't speak a huge amount to the spike just because like it's it's much later. Um, now, there was an article recently written about the spike in uh, Alphaville Journal. Uh, I believe I want to say, and uh, it uh, it does go through the incident, but it's an academic article, so it's not like you know people aren't out there you know reading like you know reading it like you know regularly. But yeah, it is interesting that RTE made this themselves about this scandal, um, and people aren't paying attention to it. Um, but it's also interesting just that they made it themselves as if like they're very. Like, and they, they, they love the Bishop in the Nighty as well. Like, it's up on the RT archive. Like, I'd say they're, you know, there's someone in the works back there trying to make a, you know, a documentary about that. Like, they love the idea that they, you know, were here and pushed these envelopes on, like, sex and sexuality in Ireland. And I think that fits really well with their narrative. Um, so it's interesting that they're really, you know, they themselves are so instrumental in highlighting you know, the sort of like instances of like censure, censorship and all of that, like in their own in their own organization. Um, I think that's interesting. It is, isn't it, that they are part of the myth making about their past um, and part of the popular discussion. They help set the terms as well, even though, you know, you could argue they're an incredibly biased actor in this, but they are a very important way of the story getting out there, especially through programs that they make themselves about their own past. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, like they are, they're, they're very involved in their own history and sort of the way that it is told and the way that it goes into sort of like the popular consciousness and all of that. Um, and it is like, it is what we sort of talked about at the start where you have like, you know, 
gay burn shows up and, you know, introduces sex. And like, that is very much like how RTE likes to view itself is like, you know, we're the late, late channel. And like, you know, like we did all of these, you know, important sexy things. And then we opened up Ireland in these ways. And, um, yeah, it's, it, and I think that's, that's probably part of the reason the Bishop and Lady is such like a, you know, is so widely out there. Yeah, they, they really were much more of a, you know, status quo organization most of the time. So it's not necessarily the correct narrative, if that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's part of it, but there are, of course, programs that are deeply conservative on the same channel. Yeah, it's always interests me how we focus on gay burn because I, I came from a radio household. The radio was always on. So, of course, there was gay burn. But Marion Finucane was also huge. And my mother loved Marion because she was a feminist and she was quite an activist person in her political views. And I mean, Marion was was God really in our house. And we never hear about Marion Finucane's show as transforming Ireland, even though I remember it being quite a politically conscious and relatively radical radio show for its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, you can see that kind of work um, and you can see it as well with, um, you know, like a program like sort of like, you know, like Women Today was a radio program in uh, the very late 70s that was extremely like forward thinking and um, probably more radical than like anything that like Gay Byrne was doing on the radio. Um but I do think I think that speaks to some of the ways that like, you know, it, it really just speaks to the ways that like women are sidelined in that memory. Like the the, the credit's always going to go to Gay Byrne and not Marion Finucane because I don't know, he's the, you know, the father of Ireland, uh, the, you know, Uncle Gabo. Like that's, you know, that's who we have to listen to. And Marion Finucane, uh, you know, very much does get sidelined in that. And many other women get sidelined in that as well. So, yeah. And the invention of sex, like the late, late show invented sex. I mean, there are. There are advice columns in the independent and the press where they are perhaps not giving sex advice, but they are certainly skirting around those kinds of issues in the 60s before Gay Byrne talks about sex on the telly. So he isn't the only person doing that particular job at the time. Yeah, absolutely. But only women are reading those. So why would anyone, you know, care about and it, no, it is true. Like, there is definitely stuff going on before that. And I would also like really importantly, like contend that the late late itself outside of say like the Bishop of the Nighty incident and then stuff where you go when you go sort of further into like the late 70s and 80s for most of the 60s, the late late was not a particularly like radical space. It was actually very light, fluffy, total light and light entertainment. Um, and was not necessarily what was it, it wasn't actually necessarily the most progressive space on Irish television that only really changes as you get into like sort of into the 70s and you see some sort of level of like um, more pushing the envelope. And yeah, I think it's sometimes like I think sometimes the 60s late late and the 80s late late get kind of conflated because in the 60s it really wasn't it wasn't really that interesting. Like, it was very interesting. People loved watching it, but it wasn't necessarily what was introducing sex to Ireland week after week. A lot of times it was just like, you know, like very boring panels about like someone wrote a book or, you know, now let's go to the musical guest. Like it wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't introducing sex to Ireland most of the time. Did he have Edna O'Brien on at all in the 60s when she was, you know, the bete noire of the censors and so famous for being so scandalous? Not so far as I know. And importantly, he very rarely had any women on. Um, 
I think that's like a, I mean, there's letters in like, you know, like the RT guy being like, could you put a woman on the panel of Delete Late? Like maybe. You mean they noticed? Yeah. Oh my like, God. It well, must like, have been bad. Noticed, they were like, no one's there. Like, why is no one here for us? Like, and like one of them responded like, oh, well, we had a woman like, you know, 10 weeks ago and she participated and it was like, okay, so you just don't have any women there. And that's your, you know, like what you do. Um, and so there was, he, yeah, there was not a lot of interest in hearing women's voices on the late late at all. So no, he didn't. As far as I know, he did not have a no, Brian. <laughs> it's it's just so fascinating. I think it's interesting. You could be right about that. We see the clips of the 1980s and the 1990s late late. I mean, there are a lot of them online and they're discussing condoms and homosexuality and I think conflating it with the 60s makes a lot of sense that we're seeing like it's a, all the same program. But also I did watch The Late Late in the 80s and the 90s. And I can categorically say most of the time it was boring as shite. It was dull. My parents had it on. There was nothing else to watch. I mean, we had no choice. We weren't allowed to choose the television. And a lot of the time it was quite dull, really. They were very occasional moments like that of scandal, but they were also much later in the evening. And, you know, teenagers would have been sent to bed before all of that happened. So if they were introducing sex to the audience, it was most definitely people who were already having it. <laughs> yeah, so they weren't really, you know, you know, bringing the bringing the idea to anybody. You know, everyone probably already had the idea, uh, you know, who was watching. But yeah, like that is the thing as well is that like, you know, it is a weekly show. So it's not going to, you know, create, you know, any sort of waves every single week and a lot of times people just draw out these very specific these very specific incidents about it and make that sort of the whole of the late late when that's not really what it was um it wasn't always the envelope pusher that people suggest that it was a lot of times it was just it was it was just as status quo as anything else that was you know coming up onto you know rt there was a lot of entertainment like there was I mean Peter Ustinov was on regularly doing funny voices which I'm not complaining about it was very entertaining but it's perhaps not what it's best remembered for no and in and in the 60s that was more of it than anything like you really don't see until again until the early 70s there's kind of a shake up at the show um spread mostly by i think Leela Dolan when she sort of you know she has a role towards the the end of the decade in sort of reshaping it there wasn't really a huge amount of focus on like current affairs or anything until that point it was all really like this like you know it wasn't the place where ireland had its discussions necessarily it was the place where you know you turned on to see, you know, whoever happened to be, you know, the musical guest that week. So, yeah, we used to dread the uh, the musical specials. Oh, my God. I have to turn those off straight away. It's like two hours of this same music over and over again. Even if you liked the artist, you were like, it's just too much, you know. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Morgan, thank you so much. That has been just a fascinating romp through the RTE archives. The best of them, the worst of them random soap operas I've never heard. I mean, I feel completely enlightened after that. Well, thank you as well. I always really enjoy telling people about random uh, RT soap operas that nobody remembers anymore. So um. <laughs> I, it's, it's such a pity that the archive has been thinned out and they can't show these old ones and we can sit there and admire the bad haircuts and the dodgy accents. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it really is. Like the loss of footage is a real like uh, is a real tragedy. Um, you can still see like if you are interested in seeing, you know, what Southside actually looked like, there are stills from a photo shoot that they did for the RTV guide. Um, so you can see sort of the, you know, the weird haircuts and the, you know, very sort of late 60s, 70s wardrobe. And uh, uh, the, the woman who played the daughter in the, in the show, uh, Trisha. Uh, wearing a miniskirt and theoretically the first miniskirt on RT. So. Oh, well, I mean, that's a landmark, much better than the Mischief in the Nighty, the first yep. miniskirt. <laughs> yep. Great. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.